Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory. And we welcome those of you watching us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming live from the Stewart Observatory website. This is our penultimate public evening for the spring 2013 semester. Before we introduce tonight's speaker, I would like to um, note that uh, it's somewhat cloudy outside. So telescope probably won't be open for viewing afterwards, but I'll check on that at 8.30 and let you know at the end of today's lecture. Second of all, uh, if you're a student here for an assignment, I am the one who will validate your assignment and I'll do it over at that table at the conclusion of question and answer. Thirdly, if you haven't gotten onto our email distribution list for the public evening series and other steward public outreach events, the uh, sign-up sheets in the back of the room, feel free to give us your email address. And by the way, this is something I'm going to be sending out or asking Dan to send out in a week or two uh, on the email address. This is our final public evening. It'll be three weeks from tonight because we want to sync up with the date April 23rd. On the evening of April 22nd, we are going to celebrate the 90th anniversary of the dedication of the Stewart Observatory, which is that white building outside and the 36-inch telescope that used to be inside of it. Uh, for the evening, I will start it off with a little history of Stewart Observatory, including the life of Andrew Ellicott Douglas. And I just came from the Photoshop on Friday we have digitized some 16 millimeter film that he took back in the 1920s and 1930s. And I'm sure these haven't been shown in public probably in over 50 years since he was alive. They've been sitting in his archive. So uh, I have some images of people actually using the telescope back in the late 20s and students coming from class, some interesting shots. Then Professor Laird Close is going to talk about a guy named Alvin Clark because it turns out the finder scope on that 36 inch telescope is a 1988, excuse me, 1888 Elvin Clark 5-meter refractor. And we've taken it down from Kitt Peak. It arrived in the building today. And we're going to have it installed in that other dome, the James Dome on top of the red brick building. So after, you'll be able to look through an actual telescope made by the Jacques Cartier of telescope makers of the 19th century. <laughs> and the telescope itself was made in 1888 and you'll get a chance to look through it. Then Professor John Cock, who retired, uh, he was one of my professors when I was a grad student here, he made one of the first big discoveries here at Stewart Observatory back in 1969. By then, the 36-inch telescope had moved to Kitt Peak, and he and his co-workers discovered the optical pulsar in the Crab Nebula. And that was sort of one of the first big uh, things that put Stewart Observatory on the map, uh, as far as scientifically. So, Professor Cock, will uh, then uh, talk about uh, his experiences using that telescope in 1969. He'll talk about neutron stars. And then afterwards, you can look through the Clark Refractor, the Raymond White 21-inch telescope, and there will be birthday cake and punch in the lobby. So we look forward to having a fun evening. And uh, if um, everything holds, the dean should be here as well. It's on his calendar, as well as our director. So we're looking forward to having a fun evening on April the 22nd. So tonight, we have Professor Yancey Shirley. Yancey received his bachelor's degree, triple major, in astronomy, physics, and math from the University of Arizona, right here 
He's one of our undergraduates. But then he went off to Austin, Texas, and got his PhD in astronomy from the University of Texas. From there, he received the prestigious Jansky Fellowship. That's sort of the Hubble Fellowship for radio astronomers. And uh, he uh, was a Jansky Fellow at the Very Large Array, uh, which is in Saqqara, New Mexico. That is a uh, facility of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And then from Saqqara, he came here as an assistant professor. And uh, he does radio astronomy. He studies star formation. He studies planet formation. He's kind of interested in that astrobiology stuff. I'm sure he wouldn't mind discovering the first Earth-like planet, you know, <laughs> or life around it. He'll, 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 he'll do that. He's interested. Um, so without further ado, we uh, asked uh, Dr. Yancey Shirley to give a talk on future solar systems, finding the initial phase of star and planet formation. Great. Thank you, Tom. Well, it's always a pleasure to come back and give a public talk because they're so well attended here. I've given public talks all over the U.S. and I have to say Tucson has the best audiences as far as a, a public talk. So thank you very much. Well, it was always my goal when I was a student, an undergraduate student here. I had such an incredible experience. I was a Hoosier. I grew up in north central Indiana under some relatively dark skies but rather cloudy a lot of times. And I came out here for astronomy because of the astronomy program. It was always my goal when I was an undergraduate to come back and be a professor. And so now I've been back for five years, and I couldn't really be happier. So what I want to talk to you about today is some of the research we've been doing for the last couple of years, which deal with surveys of our known Milky Way galaxy, galactic plane surveys. And these surveys are some of the most unbiased surveys we have to date of where stars and planets are forming today within our own home galaxy. And so I want to talk today about future solar systems. Where do we find these sites where the solar systems of tomorrow are forming today within our own galaxy? So when you look out at the night sky, especially from here in the city of Tucson, where you can easily see fourth magnitude stars from in the city, you can see the Milky Way galaxy streaming across the sky. And this is readily apparent, especially in the summertime. If you go out here in just another couple months, after sunset, you'll be able to see the Milky Way streaming up overhead from the southeast part of the sky. Now, this beautiful picture here by Wally Pacholka is he's a famous astrophotographer. Took this image from Mauna Kea on top of a 14,000-foot volcano in Hawaii. And he just happened to catch the Milky Way where at the latitude you are in Hawaii, there's a time where the Milky Way will look like it's pretty much parallel with the horizon as it's starting to rise up over the horizon. The first thing you notice when you look at this image is we live in a spiral galaxy that's almost like a pancake. It's very, very thin, all right? And not only is it made up of literally hundreds of billions of stars, but there's all these little dark patches, this obscuring material that you can see, which you can actually see not even in deep photographic images like this, but with your naked eye. It's actually easy to poke, see these regions poke out under a very, very dark sky with your own eye. This material here is what is called molecular clouds, and it's going to be the subject of what we're talking about today. It's the regions where there's the raw material at essentially out of which stars and planets are forming today within our own galaxy. It looks like we're frozen up again, so hopefully that doesn't... New laptops, so we'll see how this works out tonight. Okay, so this is one of these regions. If you zoom in to our Milky Way galaxy, this is, by the way, is the Pleiades, right over here in Taurus. And you take a nice, deep photographic exposure over this region, you can see one of these nearby star-forming molecular clouds. 
It's a dusty molecular cloud. It's actually material made up of gas and also dust particles that makes this obscuring material that's blocking out the background starlight. It's also scattering some light. That's why it looks like these are somewhat lit up surfaces basically on the front side here. Down here is a little protostar that's forming. And you can see some of the scattered light coming out in the blue. It's a similar reason to why our sky is blue, as to why this light is blue. The blue light is much more easily scattered by the dust particles that are basically in one of these clouds. So if we want to study the regions where stars and planets are forming today, we need to study and understand these kinds of objects in our galaxy. Now, occasionally we can get lucky, and you can find a protostar, a protostar meaning a very, very young, in the phases of forming star, down here that's near the surface of the cloud. But deeply embedded within the cloud are other stars that are forming. And if you try to observe this region with optical wavelengths, the wavelengths that your eyes are sensitive to, you're not going to be able to see or study those regions where the stars and planets are forming because they're embedded within this obscuring clouds of material. We need other techniques to be able to peer past this veil, this dusty veil, and be able to look inside the clouds. So how do we do that? Well, one of the ways that we can do this is to go to longer wavelengths than what our eyes are sensitive to. So up here is an image of one of these little patches of a cloud. This is called B68. It's in the direction of Ophiuchus, if you're familiar with that constellation. This is an optical image of this particular cloud, okay? Uh, you can see that it's very, very opaque towards the center. Matter of fact, you can start to see just around the edges here, just faint little red stars that you can barely see around the very, very edge. Now, if you take a telescope and you put a detector at the focus of the telescope that can see infrared light, so wavelengths of light that are a little bit longer than the red light that our eyes are sensitive to, you can actually start to peer through this dark cloud and see that there's actually a lot of background stars on the back side of this cloud, and their light is passing through it if we can get to long enough wavelengths. So this is one technique which is going to be a fundamental theme of today, and that is if we go to longer wavelengths, we can actually peer past the dust, the obscuring dust in these clouds. So what do I mean by dust? So this is nothing like your house bunnies that you have in your house that you sweep up. Dust in an astrophysical sense is small little particles. Sometimes they contain as many as just a few atoms all the way up to, for instance, this rather large case here, which contains over a million atoms. This is a, a view through a microscope. This little bar here is one millionth of a meter, so one micron in terms of size. And this is what a typical interstellar dust grain looks like. It's a very, very amorphous, uh, almost fractal structure in some cases. And they're made up of various kinds of material. We can do spectroscopy on these, on these materials and we can understand what they're made out of. They're typically made out of silicates or carbonaceous materials. And that's what creates all this obscuration in the clouds. And the reason why this technique works is because the size of these dust grains. This dust grain here is just a little bit bigger than one micron. So if we go and observe at wavelengths that are about one micron or even longer, that light has a long enough wavelength that it can get past these dust grains. It doesn't really even see the dust grains themselves. It's only when you have wavelengths of light that are about the size or shorter does the light get easily scattered or absorbed by these dust grains. So that's why this cloud appears dark over here at optical wavelengths, and we can start to see through it at infrared wavelengths. So here's another beautiful example of what we can do with these sort of infrared observations. This is the Orion Nebula one of my favorite regions in the sky. 
It's a star-forming region. Uh, it's a little over, it's, it's almost 1,500 light years away in the direction of the sword of Orion. Down here in the center of this nebula are four stars that are called the trapezium, which are what's responsible for lighting up this beautiful optical emission nebula that you actually see here in the sky. Now, this is an optical image, and you'll notice that there's all this dark filamentary material all the way around the nebula. This looks like a cavity that's been blown out by the winds from these young stars. And all this stuff that's surrounding this nebula is the raw material out of which the next generations, the ones after these guys have formed, are now forming today within the Orion Nebula. So if we poke inside this thing, zoom in a little bit. So now here's the four stars of the trapezium. This is still an optical image, but now it's taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. And let's look at this little patch here, which in the optical image doesn't look like much of anything. Pretty blank. There's just a couple little stars you see here. And now you go observe at infrared wavelengths, again with the Hubble Space Telescope, and what you realize is that embedded within this dense, dusty material is an entire cluster of stars that are hidden from view at optical wavelengths, but which we can now peer past that dust and start to see all these little protostars that are forming in this region of the cloud. So the technique of going to longer wavelengths is really, really powerful for studies of how stars and planets form today in our galaxy. So just as a review, I'm going to be talking about various wavelengths of light today. So I just wanted to review the electromagnetic spectrum. The visible light that our eyes are sensitive to are only a tiny little sliver of the entire electromagnetic spectrum of all the different kinds of light, essentially, you have. At wavelengths shorter than blue and violet, you have ultraviolet light, which our eyes are not sensitive to. There are some animals, insects, like moths, for instance, butterflies, that are actually sensitive to UV light and can see that. And as you go to shorter and shorter wavelengths, you get things like x-rays, etc. What we're going to mostly be talking about today are wavelengths of light that are longer than visible light. So the infrared part of the spectrum and all the way over into what's called microwaves in the radio part of the spectrum. And we're going to get to wavelengths of light that are so long, they're up to a millimeter in terms of the wavelength of light. Okay, so you could actually, if you could actually see the photons, if you could actually stop one and take a look at it, at microwaves, you could actually physically see the size of the photon, the wavelength of light gets bigger. Now, the reason why we want to do this is because the dust, which is such a real pain for an observer that's trying to study how stars and planets form, because it obscures the whole process, it makes it so it's hard for us to see, that dust is also, it turns out, our friend. It provides us a way to probe the structure inside these clouds. You might ask, how in the world can that be the case? It creates these dark clouds that we can't peer into. If we have to go to really, really long wavelengths to see them, how in the world does the dust then become our friend at these long wavelengths? Well, the answer is this. It has to do with what's called black body emission. And the fact is, and it's just a fundamental fact of the physics of nature, every object in our universe that has a temperature associated with it emits radiation gives off photons. We're most familiar with the case of the sun. The sun is very hot. It's about 6,000 degrees Kelvin. It has a spectrum which peaks in the yellow part of the visible spectrum in terms of wavelength. It's at about a half a micron is where yellow light is in the peak of the spectrum. This curve, by the way, has been scaled down by a factor of one million. It's a very, very bright object, so this would go up a million times higher than what's actually shown on this graph, the way it's currently plotted. Okay, now if you get to something that's colder than our sun, like let's say the Earth, 
or a human being on the earth, which is at a temperature of about 300 degrees Kelvin. So 300 degrees Kelvin versus 6,000 degrees Kelvin, it also gives off light. Except we don't glow in the optical, we glow in the infrared part of the spectrum. Out here at wavelengths of light, like 10 to 20 microns, is where the peak of our spectrum is. So if you build an infrared camera that could see wavelengths of light out here in this part of the spectrum, at say 8, 10, 15 microns, you could see everybody in this room glowing. Even if we turned all the lights off, that infrared camera would detect the light coming from us, just because we have a temperature. And here's an example of this. This is actually from an infrared camera. The colors here correspond to intensity of the light, so the more red the colors are, the hotter that particular region is in this particular image. And this is from light being given off by a human being just because they have a temperature associated with them. So now why is that important in outer space where we have these dust particles? Well, it turns out the dust that's creating all that obscuration and creating these dark clouds, that dust absorbs radiation from around in the galaxy, okay? So if you just pick an average place within the Milky Way galaxy and you plunk down and you look around, it's not going to be very bright, but hitting you from all sides will be light from all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, unless you're standing right next to a star, like our sun, like we here are on the Earth, you're not going to have a bright source of light. But nevertheless, you will have some small amount of light. And these dust grains in outer space will absorb that light. And absorbing that energy, they will heat up just a little bit, not very much, maybe only 10 degrees above absolute zero. But because they have a temperature associated with them, they will glow. They will give off wavelengths of light. And just like the trend that we had on this diagram, with the sun here peaking here at 6,000 degrees Kelvin, and the earth peaking here at 300 degrees Kelvin, a dust grain that's 10 Kelvin will be a tiny little blip, which won't even barely show up on this graph in terms of intensity. And it will peak way out here at hundreds of microns in terms of wavelength, way out beyond the infrared, out into the microwave and radio part of the spectrum. So this provides us another way to actually probe the structure of these clouds. So now let me show you some examples, actually, of this in action and happening. So to do these wavelengths, it turns out our atmosphere is very, very bad at mid to far infrared wavelengths. The molecules in our atmosphere, in particular water, which is very precious here in Arizona, water does bad things to these wavelengths. It likes to absorb them coming in through our atmosphere. So it's kind of a shame, you know, a photon leaves some star-forming region, travels for 500 light years to get to the Earth, and then absorbed by a water molecule the last second before it gets to your telescope. So the only way to solve this problem is to go to space or to fly at very, very high altitudes, like on a high-altitude aircraft or a balloon, to get up above most of the water. So the Spitzer Space Telescope, which was flown in the late 2000s, was one of these instruments that went up and flew, and it actually mapped the Milky Way galaxy, a good chunk of the Milky Way galaxy at infrared wavelengths. And the first thing you'll notice in this image, this is a false color image. The three different colors that make up this image are all infrared wavelengths that are longer than the wavelength of light that your eyes can see. The first thing you'll notice is unlike the optical image I showed you of the Milky Way, most of the dark clouds have gone away. You now see all of this dust starting to glow in this particular image. It's showing up as a faint green glow most of the way around the plane. And that is because of this dust giving off that energy, essentially, that it's radiating because it's heated up just a little bit. So you're starting to see that at infrared wavelengths. 
If we zoom in a little bit to one of these patches, this is really quite beautiful. I love this image. These are the three wavelengths we're looking at. Blue is three microns. Green is eight microns. And red is much longer in wavelength. It's 24 microns. Okay. So to give this a reference again, yellow light that your eyes are sensitive is about a half a micron. So this shortest wavelength is about six times longer in wavelength than yellow light, than what your eye is sensitive to. The only thing that you see showing up in blue are stars, okay, in this particular image. And in green, you're starting to see the dust emission. And in red, you notice these little pinpoints of light. Occasionally, there's a big fuzzy thing like this, but these little pinpoints of light. What you're starting to see here in red, these little pinpoints at 24 microns, those are protostars that are forming. And the reason why you can see them is that they have dust around them. They're embedded within this dark cloud here. And they're heating up that dust because they're a young star and they're putting out lots of energy. And that dust is glowing at infrared wavelengths and it shows up as a little pinpoint of light at 24 microns. So everywhere you see one of these little red dots is a young star that's being born inside one of these clouds. The other thing that's really amazing is remember, the whole reason we went to infrared wavelengths was to peer into these clouds, to be able to see into them. Here's an example of a cloud that is still dark at infrared wavelengths. So even though we've gone beyond the optical into the infrared, there's still so much dust and so much material in this cloud, we still can't even see through it at infrared wavelengths. So this tells you that if we want to study structures like this, we need to go to even longer wavelengths. We need to go beyond 24 microns in the infrared and even farther in wavelengths to get past all that dust that's in those clouds. So how do we do that? Well, you can go to even longer wavelengths. And again, there's another instrument that's actually just finishing its mission right now. It has, it's on a three-year cryogenic mission. It's called the Herschel Space Telescope. It's a little 3.5-meter telescope. And it was specifically designed to make maps of the universe at far infrared and sub-millimeter wavelengths, so even longer wavelengths than what Spitzer did. And when you go to these very, very long wavelengths, this is an example of one of these images. So now we're talking about very long wavelengths of light. The blue in this image is 70 microns, and the red is all the way out at 500 microns, half a millimeter in terms of size, essentially, of the wavelength of light. And what you'll notice is, first of all, the dark clouds are gone, all right? All of the emission that you see in this image at the different colors is due to dust grains glowing because they've been heated up, either by young protostars, and so they're hotter, and so they glow at shorter wavelengths, or cold, very cold dust that's maybe only 10 degrees above absolute zero that's just being heated by the ambient starlight in our galaxy. So this tells us right here that if we go to these very, very long wavelengths, into the far infrared and into the submillimeter part of the spectrum, we can study the complete structure of these clouds and now see all the way through them and study the complete and total structure of the, of the whole cloud. Well, it turns out that if you go to long enough wavelengths, longer than 500 microns, the atmosphere opens back up and becomes transparent again. And you can actually start to observe through the atmosphere very, very efficiently from the ground. So about a decade ago, people started building instruments to make these kinds of observations using radio telescopes from the ground. And here's an example of one of these instruments, one of the first generations of these. This was called BOLOCAM. It was actually uh, the, one of the co-PIs, uh, principal investigators for this particular camera, was a former U of A graduate student, who's now a professor at the University of Colorado. His name is Jason Glenn. 
And at that time, this was the state-of-the-art technology. Now, all of you that have cell phones in the audience, everybody has cell phones with little CCD cameras that have cameras with something on the order of 8 to 10 million pixels in the focal plane that take images now, 8 to 10 megapixels, right? This camera was a real revolution at the time that it became available in 2004. It had 144 pixels in the focal plane. The previous generation camera before this, the one that I started doing my thesis with, had 92 in the focal plane. And the one before that, when I was an undergrad here in 1995, had one pixel in the focal plane. This was a big deal, okay? In terms of efficiency and mapping speed and sensitivity, this camera represented a revolution where it was an increase in a factor of 10,000 and how quickly we could map this emission in the sky at these long wavelengths. In this case, this camera works at one millimeter. It's pretty amazing how these detectors work. They work in very different ways than you might imagine. They're little thermometers, basically. When a photon comes in and hits one of these detectors, it actually absorbs a tiny little amount of energy, okay? A little bit of energy from that. And it heats up, and it actually changes the resistance of this material. And by putting a voltage across there, you can measure the current changes in these detectors, these tiny little current changes. Now, the problem with this is that when you're trying to detect radio waves, radio waves do not have a lot of energy. So in order to absorb them and cause these temperature changes, this detector cannot be noisy at all. It has to be cooled down to such a low temperature that the detector noise here doesn't completely swamp your signal that you're trying to detect from outer space. In order for this camera to work, you don't only need to use liquid nitrogen, which gets you down to 77 degrees above absolute zero. You don't even need to have to, you, you, only, you also have to use liquid helium, which gets you down to four degrees above absolute zero. You actually use a rare form of helium, the only, something you only get from nuclear reactors, helium-3, which gets you down to, believe this or not, less than a half a degree above absolute zero in order for these detectors to work. It's pretty crazy stuff. Kind of fun to work with, though, actually, I to admit. So where does an instrument like this go? Well, it turns out, again, water in our atmosphere is the enemy for observing at these wavelengths. So you put it on a big radio telescope like this, the Caltech Submillimeter Observatory, which is a 10-meter dish, and it's sitting on top of Mauna
And thank you very much, Yancey. We do have time for some questions. Yes, we have a couple down here, right here. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to understand a protostar. Is, is it lit or it is going to be lit? Okay. Then part two of my question is why are, and I'm only talking brand new stars, maybe even with nuclear fusion going on, why are there so many different sizes? Why are some small and some big? Um, after this, this survey, the census, does it change your thinking or the thinking of the scientific community on uh, the rate at which stars are formed in the Milky Way? And
can you tell us what these findings have shown about planet formation? Um, you just mentioned something about these uh, larger mass stars that are formed, let's say, from 50 to 100 solar masses, and they have an effect of pushing away material. Then this means then there could be a result of that where this pushed away material compresses some distance away. And if so, that could then form a set of stars. And does your process or technique uh, determine those uh, steps? Bruce Wokening, yeah. Thank you. 
Any other questions? We'll take one more question. Based on your data and comparing it with the data from the Kepler mission, any ideas as to changes in the computations based on the Drake equation?
Okay, I have some very good news. It's cleared up. The telescope is open. In fact, I checked out during the ANSI's lecture, I'm sorry, just to check, and I looked at Jupiter. The red spot is right in the middle of the planet right now. So it's a good view of the red spot tonight if you'd like to see Jupiter. Um, I would like to remind you again, our final public evening, three weeks from tonight, April 22nd, I hope you're able to come out and help us celebrate the 90th anniversary of Stewart Observatory. I will stamp student assignments down here and let's thank Professor Shirley one more